Well, let me take this opportunity to wish everyone a happy new year. Um, we are in the last day of 2017, and this is uh, some, it's a, quite the privilege to be able to be with the people of God. In fact, I, as I think through all the myriad of places we could be and the things we could be doing on the last day of the year, there's nothing better uh, than being assembled with God's people in worship in God's house. Also, um, I have the privilege of being uh, of preaching today as well as next Sunday, and so uh, we're doing a two-part series on Galatians chapter 5. This morning is the first of the two-part series where we're looking at Christian identity, and then next week we'll look at Christian responsibility, really two sides to the same coin. Uh, some theologians have coined the phrase the indicative of Scripture, that Paul in his writings oftentimes tells us who we are before he tells us what we are to do. And then uh, after the indicative is the imperative. So before an imperative is given, before he tells us what we are to do, he tells us, he reminds us of who we are. So this morning we're going to look at who we are, our identity as Christians. So if you will, please turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 12, and the next week we'll read verse 13 through verse 26. But this morning, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 12. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this year. And as we stand on the brink of a new year, 2018, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to hear your word, to hear you speak to us through your word, and to remind us of who we are in Christ, of what qualifies us to be your children. And as we face not only the future, a new year, but also the rest of this day, we pray that you would take the words that we have read together, that you would bring them as truth to our hearts and to our minds, and may they transform us into the image of our dear Savior. We ask this, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, some of you may remember, back in 1997, there was a movie that came out called Anastasia. Perhaps 
you were young at the time and saw the movie in the theater. It's an animated film. And in this movie, the movie itself has to do with the last, what they thought was the last remaining heir of the Romanov family in Russia. And the story goes that uh, a young lady who was, uh, who was able to escape the murder of her family was later found by a young man named Dmitri. He discovered her, and he discovered, actually through ulterior motives, he discovered that she was indeed Anastasia. And so he uh, presented her to the Dowager Empress Marie. And during that period of time, he himself was not fully convinced that she was Anastasia, but rather he wanted to cash in on the reward that the Empress Dowager was offering for her. But through the transaction, not only did he realize that she was indeed who she said she was, because she had memories that no one other than Anastasia could know, but also he fell in love with her. And so the story goes, and we're actually very satisfied with the ending that Anastasia is, is declared to be the last remaining heir of the Romanov household. However, she abdicates the throne in favor of love, in favor of true love, uh, something that only Disney could, uh, could put a twist on and make as appealing as it truly is. However, few people really know the story of the Romanov family. And partly it's due to the real empress, dowager empress Maria, being unwilling to believe that her husband and his entire household were dead. And so for the remainder of her life, which was not that long after 1918, whenever the Bolsheviks came and slaughtered the Romanov family, uh, she refused to believe that they were all dead. But what that did was it kept hope among the royalists in Russia that maybe there truly was the possibility that a descendant of the Romanov family could ascend the throne once more and the Russian Empire could become a player on the world scene. It was not until 2007 that an archaeologist, when digging, exploring in a grave nearby to where her father was buried when he was assassinated by the Bolsheviks, discovered her remains as well. And so it put to death, put to rest, if you will, uh, the, the possibility, the hope that Anastasia might be yet alive. Now, what does any of that have to do with our passage? What we see in the passage here in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, is that the people of Galatia, to whom Paul was addressing this epistle, were semi-devoted to Christ. They professed to be Christians. They professed to believe in the atoning work of Christ and his finished work on their behalf, while maintaining a devotion to the law and its abrogated ceremonial requirements. They held on to this vestige of the past, just as the royalists did the hope that someday Anastasia would be rediscovered or discovered and that she would ascend once more to the throne and, and the Russian Empire could be uh, reborn. Well, the Galatians during the time of Paul had a similar hope, the hope that you and I subconsciously have to continuously put out of our minds and hearts even today, and that is that we can do something to pre-qualify for the grace of God. That's ultimately what Paul, in his own way, in his manner, takes a swinging uh, axe blade to whenever he says, you cannot do that. And we're going to look at exactly what he says here uh, this morning. But first, let's look at the first point that I want to make. It's there in your bulletin. And that is that, that Paul tells them in verse 1 that serving anything or anyone other than Christ 
is slavery. In fact, he very witty has a witty comment that he makes here when he says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, what he's telling the Galatians, which could have been, by the way, many different people groups, because Galatia was a Roman province that uh, included such cities in the southern part as, as Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, uh, cities that are familiar to you if you've read the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, they're cities that Paul went to on his first missionary journey, so they are uh, very well known uh, in, in the book of Acts, but also in the northern part of Galatia, there were the Gauls or the Celts. The Celts lived. And so really, whenever he's writing the epistle to the Galatians, he could have been writing to everyone in that particular province. Because really the issue that he's addressing is one that was very pervasive today, even or then, even as it is today. But Paul reminds them that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And this, from his vantage point, from the vantage point of the Apostle Paul, is Christianity one-on-one. That it is Christ and his finished work plus nothing that is the means of our justification. That is the means of our qualification to stand before God. So the purpose of our justification, the purpose is freedom, pure and simple. Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But what is freedom? Well, those of you who who've seen the, the movie Braveheart, which again is a dated movie, came out in 1993. You know that it was uh, one of the heart cries of William Wallace when he was being tortured to death at the hands of, the, uh, of, of King Edward Longshanks, his men. He cried out, freedom! And it sort of epitomizes the entire plot line, the theme of the movie. And in the West today, in the 21st century world that we live in, freedom is often characterized by the ability to adhere to our own conscience to be dominated by no one, to be controlled by no one, to be ruled by no one. It's really a sense of self-sufficiency. When modern man talks about freedom, it's defined as our ability to do what we want or as we please without being towed or governed by another. But the biblical definition of freedom does not begin with the self, does not begin with my rights, but rather it begins with God the Creator. So one thing that Paul does not allow when he defines freedom is the notion that freedom means serving no one, because that's truly impossible. You and I were born, it's part of our DNA to serve someone. And most often today, you and I struggle with serving ourselves. We do not live in a monarchy. We do not live in a day in which there's a a tyrant that requires us to serve him or her, Uh, at least not in America. They do, Christians do in other parts of the world. But we are not living in that, thank God, in that type of a political scenario. But we are still being dominated by ourself. We serve ourself. But the biblical definition, in fact, the Christian definition here that Paul has given is that freedom is ultimately the ability to serve God, the God-enabled, the grace-inspired ability to serve God the way that God commands. We cannot help but serve something or serve someone. So again, the indicative here, or uh, Paul says, why Christ died, why Christ has redeemed us, when he says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, and then he gives the command or the imperative that I mentioned earlier when he says, stand firm, therefore. 
So the reality is that Christ died to set us free, and then he says, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, the identity of a Christian is simply that we have been liberated from the forced servitude to other things, and by God's grace, we are enabled to serve Christ alone. That's the definition of freedom for a Christian. That is the very heart, the core, the identity, the DNA of a believer is that we have been liberated from all lords, all masters, all gods, including our own self, and that we have been bought and purchased with the blood of Christ to live according to his design. Now, you may say, and this is true, that as Christians, there are numerous times in the Bible that we are called to serve others. So how can I say, how can the Apostle Paul say that Christian freedom is serving Christ and Christ alone? How can I say, as I mentioned in my first point, that uh, we are only free when we serve Christ and and that uh, serving anything or anyone other than Christ is slavery? How can I say that when we are continuously admonished from Scripture to serve others? Husbands are admonished in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, to serve their wives. You and I are admonished to serve in our chosen vocation, Colossians 3.23. However, our primary objective in serving others, whether it be our spouse or whether it be whatever vocation that God has placed us in, is not our spouse or the vocation itself, but rather Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us that we should do all as unto the Lord. We should do all things unto Christ. So the freedom that we have in Christ comes from the fact that regardless of where we are or what we are doing, we are the servants of God. Because if we serve one another, even those whom we love and hold dear to us for their sake, then there will be some time when they disappoint us, they let us down, we become frustrated with them, and then it's easy not to serve them. But we don't serve them for their sake, we serve them for the sake of Christ. Again, that's why... Christ, in John's gospel, the 21st chapter, when he's talking to Peter before his ascension, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Christ says, then serve my or feed my sheep. The objective behind feeding the sheep was not love for the sheep, but rather love for Christ. And so the purpose behind serving one another is ultimately a desire to serve and to please Christ. And it is because of this that if Christ is the center of our heart, if he is the center of our longing, the center of our service, then as Christ says in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 36, if the Son has set you free from all other obligations, from all other heart ties, then are you free indeed. Now this brings me to my second point, which is that Christian identity is ultimately spirit-enabled faith working through love which is a fundamental component of who we are in Christ. So we're going to flesh this out a bit, but let me just repeat it. Christian identity is spirit-enabled faith working through love. The heart of the issue for the people of Galatia is what qualifies us, what qualified them to be acceptable to God. There were those in the church who were preaching that you had to become converted to Judaism before you could be a believer. You had to be circumcised before you could be a Christian. Now, Paul does not attack circumcision itself. If we read that, then we misunderstand his argument. Because after all, what is circumcision? Well, 
It is a sign and seal of the covenant, right? If you look at the covenant, the Old Testament covenant of God, we see that circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so it itself was God-ordained. And you can argue and follow the logic before we become too harsh on these Galatian uh, heretics. Um, We can follow their logic and see that if this was a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, and up to this point in time, the New Testament had not been written, then it was not much of a stretch for them to say, well, somehow all of that pre-qualifies us to accept the atoning work of Christ. So you have to be converted. You have to be a Jew before you can be a Christian. You have to be circumcised before you can accept Christ. So the problem derives not from a, mis- a mistaken understanding uh, of of or rather, the problem derived not from circumcision itself, but from a mistaken understanding of the role of circumcision in the life of God's people. If the sign and seal of God's covenant pointed the people of God to the object of the covenant, to Christ, then all is well and good. But if the sign and seal of the covenant, circumcision, was perceived as a step of prequalification or preapproval, then the sign itself obscured that which it signified. A more simple way of saying this is that if the identity of God's people derives from Christ and his finished work alone, then we are free and free indeed. And serving Christ and Christ alone is our objective. But the moment that we supplement the cross with anything is the moment that we destroy the efficacy of the cross in our lives. Now, that's much easier said than done. We may even hear that and pat ourselves on the back saying, yes, I know the gospel. Yes, I've heard it a thousand times. Yes, I know about justification. And there's multiple ways that we can divide this chapter in Galatians chapter 5. We can divide the first part as I've done and talk about Christian identity and the second part about Christian responsibility. Or we can divide the first part and talk about justification and the second part about sanctification. And we'd be doing both a, a service. However, at the heart of the issue is not so much whether the Galatians believed in the cross, but whether they believed the cross alone was sufficient for qualifying them to be children of God. And that's the danger. That's the danger that creeps in unawares in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own lives, in our practice from day to day. Not so much whether we believe in Christ and his finished work, But whether we believe the finished work of Christ is all sufficient or if somehow there's something that we must do to supplement the work that he has done on our behalf. The Apostle Paul really, to our modern minds, goes to the extreme. And we'll see that here in just a moment. He seems to overreact when he hears that the Galatians are are trying to supplement the cross with a requirement of circumcision. But really, it's not an overreaction. It may seem that way because our own hearts have become desensitized to the all-pervasiveness, the all-sufficiency of the cross. Even today, we hear preachers, not in our church, thank God for Pastor Robert and others who preach the gospel, but it's not uncommon to hear preachers who preach about accepting Christ so that you can go to heaven. And it's true that whenever we accept Christ as our Savior, heaven is our ultimate aim. But we accept Christ and his finished work not as a fire escape from hell, 
but rather because we see ourselves as wretched sinners, incapable and unable of even breathing, rightly so, in God's good earth, apart from the intervening grace that is demonstrated in Jesus and Jesus alone. When that Christ of the Gospels is presented to a heart that is vexed by sin, then we understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. We understand that the greatest threat to our identity as a Christian is not whether we accept the cross, but whether we accept the cross alone. Whether we accept the finished work of Christ and nothing more on our behalf as the means of qualifying us to be the children of God. Now again, I want to point out that Paul did not have an issue with circumcision. He himself was circumcised, and he convinced Timothy uh, to be circumcised as well. Not because he believed it qualified him to be a Christian, but rather because it made him more capable of serving among those who were Jews and who, th who saw circumcision as being more significant than it truly was. So he saw that as being a doorway to preach the gospel among the circumcised. So Paul does not have an issue with circumcision. Rather, it is the status quo religion that Paul is pushing against. It's the status quo that that somehow the cross must be supplanted, must be supplemented with human action that Paul is condemning. So what is, from this passage, from this text, what is the essential fundamental aspect of our Christian identity? Well, Paul states the following in verse 5. He says, For through the Spirit, capital S, referencing the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So there's a whole train there that I'd like to just unpack very quickly. First, we are free because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, has resurrected our hearts dead in sin and given us faith to believe in Christ and His finished work. Often when I was a child, I would hear preachers preach on the last statement of Christ from the cross when he said, it is finished. And I understood even as a boy that what he was talking about was his life. But then as I understood the gospel in greater detail, I realized he wasn't merely talking about his life. It wasn't a precursor. It wasn't a prequel to his statement where he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But rather, it was an emphatic statement to every would-be contributor to their salvation that you and I don't have to bring anything other than our sins to the cross of Jesus. When he said, it is finished, he made a proclamation for eternity, eternity past and eternity future that the only means of qualifying as a child of God is accepting the atoning work of Christ that pardons our sins and the perfect righteousness of Christ that's attributed to our account. So you and I need not supplement the cross. In fact, to do so, Paul says, strikes at the very vitals of Christianity, whether it's circumcision or some other theory or doctrine that you and I bring to the table, some other thought that somehow I can get my life right, I can do something that, that qualifies me for the grace that is given in the cross. So we are free because the spirit that raised Christ from the dead has resurrected our own hearts. One commentary puts it like this, that freedom is more than deliverance. The freedom that we see here, Paul referenced in chapter 5, verse 1, it's more than deliverance. It is a positive endowment. 
He doesn't simply deliver us from something. He delivers us to something. He doesn't simply transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness. He transfers us into the kingdom of his dear son. He doesn't simply forgive our sins. He takes his very righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, and he assigns that to us. That's the heart of the gospel. And Paul saw that as fundamental. He saw it as Christianity 101. So that if that is compromised, if that is jeopardized, regardless of what you say you believe about Christ, ultimately the foundation of our identity is undermined. God gives us the righteousness of Christ and informs us that we've been adopted into his family on the merit of the finished work of Christ alone. And so Paul later states in verse 6, the end of that verse, he says, only faith working through love counts for anything. And this faith itself is a gift of the Spirit of God, a unilateral work of God. Now, the addition of love should not be overlooked. Whenever Paul says in uh, chapter 5, verse 5, that, um, uh, that uh, it's through the Spirit by faith that we ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness, and then in verse 6, he adds to that faith working through love. Love should not be overlooked. Because when we accept through faith, faith that God himself gives, the finished work of Christ on, on the behalf of sinners, it changes our desires. So that we love him more than we love ourselves. We long for him more than we long for any earthly thing. We continuously rely on his work for the hope of glory without attempting to steal any of the credit. Now, let me uh, illustrate this briefly, if I may. In Greenville, South Carolina, my wife and I, the first house that we bought, we mistakenly went to the bank, and perhaps some of you can laugh and identify with this, but we mistakenly went to the bank and got a letter of prequalification for a home loan. Um, I, I get credit card companies all the time sending me mail saying you're pre-qualified for a credit card. It didn't take long for us to realize that that meant nothing. Basically, for you to pre-qualify simply means they're looking at your demographic profile and saying, well, you probably are creditable. You're probably credit worthy. It wasn't until we went to the bank and got pre-approved that we were able to take a letter to a potential seller that meant something. Once they saw we were pre-approved, they knew that we had money to put where our mouth was. And so it, it meant a, a little more. Well, what Paul is addressing in the church of Galatia is this underlining assumption on the part of the Galatians that circumcision somehow pre-qualifies them or pre-approves them in the courtroom of heaven as being more deservable, more uh, deserving of the grace of God that is demonstrated in the person of Christ. And what Paul is saying is an emphatic, no, your pre-qualification, what you think pre-qualifies you for the gospel is worthless. Why? Well, because there's a big difference between being pre-qualified and being pre-approved. Do you know what it is? It's your credit. They look at your credit. They don't have to do a credit history when you're pre-qualified. They do have to do a credit history when you're pre-approved. And so what Paul is saying, in no uncertain terms, to the church of Galatia, is a credit search has been done on you 
even with your circumcision, and you come up short. You don't have what it takes. You're not approved in the courtroom of heaven to even come close to paying the debt that you owe. So he says, if somehow you think you have a positive balance and you want to add that to the cross, then you don't understand the cross at all. Rather, what takes place in the courtroom of heaven is you and I who are in a deficit come before God and God through Christ assigns the credit of Jesus to our account so that God accepts you and I, not on our credit, but on Christ's credit. But there's more than that, because usually when you get pre-approved, it's for a specific amount. And the amount that you and I have been pre-approved, if I can continue that analogy, in the courtroom of heaven is nothing less than sons and daughters of God. That's the gospel. The cross plus nothing is salvation. Let me continue on to my last point. Submitting to Christ partially is not an option. This really ties together the first two points. If, as Christians, serving anything other than Christ leads to slavery, whether it be ourself, whether it be our sinful desires, regardless, fill in the blank, if that is certain, and we can see from the, script, from, from the text and we can reflect in our own lives how that is indeed the case, and if fundamental to our Christian identity is a spirit-enabled faith that works through love in our lives, then ultimately submitting to Christ partially is not an option. There's no such thing as halfway there. In southeast Missouri, the town I grew up in, there was an old expression of one day a um, young lady came home and told her father, she said, Father, uh, I'm kind of pregnant and the father, being a good Southeast Missourian, said, you either is or you ain't, there's no kind of to it. And when it comes to the gospel, that is exactly the case. Either we accept Christ and nothing more, or we don't accept Christ at all. A partial submission to Christ is not an option. And the way that Paul illustrates this appears somewhat graphic. Uh, in fact, the King James Version um, softens the blow a bit. The ESV does not, and you probably swallowed hard when I, I read the last verse of that text where Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, he's not being crass. He's not being graphic. He's not suggesting truly that he wants those who teach false doctrine to mutilate themselves. What he's doing, I believe, is referring to a very popular idolatrous cult throughout Galatia and really throughout the Roman world, which is the religion, the, the cult of, of worshiping Sibeli. The worshipers of Sibeli, if they were truly devout, if they were truly dedicated to this goddess of fertility, and all the priests had to castrate themselves to, as a sign of their worship, as a sign of their devotion. And so the point in the context of the day seems to be rather clear that what Paul is saying is, look, if you think that somehow circumcision pre-approves you or pre-qualifies you for accepting Christ, then you may as well go worship an idol. You may as well go worship some other god. Because halfway there doesn't do it. Halfway there is the same as idolatry. 
it's clear that he's not suggesting that uh, these people who teach this are believers because to him they are not. To him, the only way that you and I are qualified as children of God is if we rely exclusively on the grace that is given to us in Christ Jesus. So it is the cross plus nothing that saves us. I was intrigued as I was doing some research on Anastasia, even the movie, but also the the real story of Anastasia, to discover that um, the desire for a monarchy in Russia did not die. Even after the Romanov family was exterminated, even after the Empress Dowager Maria died, even after in 2007 they found the remains of Anastasia, in 2013 a new political party was registered in the Soviet or in the, uh, the country of Russia known as the Monarchist Party. And I, I had to do some, some further reading because I was fascinated that uh, they've actually chosen a prince who is a third cousin once removed from, uh, from Anastasia, from the Romanov family, to be the successor on the throne of Russia. His name is Prince Earl Imich. He's the apparent heir. His great-grandfather was the cousin of, of, the, uh, of the Romanov emperor. He's the rightful claimant to the throne even after decades of blood-filled Soviet oppression, the romanticized hopes of an imperial monarchy are still alive. And the reason I make that point is because I think sometimes we feel that we have moved beyond dangerous ideas. We have moved beyond thinking that we can contribute anything to our salvation. And the greatest detriment to the cross, to the efficacy of the cross in our life is not taking seriously enough the truth of the gospel, the unadulterated, pure truth of the gospel, which is Christ plus nothing is the hope of glory. So knowing that serving anything other than Christ alone is slavery and that the spirit-enabled faith and the perfect righteousness of Christ, which creates within us a love for what is holy, lends us to an accurate understanding of our identity in Christ. And that, that, that's crucial, because as we're going to see next week, whenever we explore the responsibility of a Christian, oftentimes we think that having an understanding of our identity as being something that we contribute, something that... Um, that, that we can do that pre-qualifies us to salvation, instead of that leading to legalism, more often than not, it leads to indifference because we do not fully grasp or fully understand the finished work of Christ on our behalf. So the indicative of who we are is a necessary prerequisite for understanding the Christian imperative, which we'll explore next week. Now, before I close, let me just bring in a practical application, which is this. What are you adding to the cross? Subconsciously, no doubt. But what are you adding to the work of Christ on your behalf that is equivalent to circumcision? What are you and I doing on the brink of a new year as we think about what qualifies us as children of God? What are we doing that we think makes us more suitable, more deserving of God's grace than anyone else?
Spend some time before God. It's the greatest thing we can do on New Year's Eve is spend time before God in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to our own hearts. Because like it or not, part of our human fallen nature is that we like to think we have something to bring to the table. We like to think we have some control over the outcome. And that is detrimental to the gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we give thanks for Jesus. We thank you that our identity does not revolve around what we do or who we are or our identity does not revolve around what we may bring before you that qualifies us to be your children, but rather our identity as Christians comes from what Christ, our Savior, has accomplished on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray that even as we perhaps have been reminded or been refreshed with the truth of the gospel, that you would continue to admonish our hearts with this truth, that you would continue to speak to us today and throughout this upcoming year, our identity as Christians, and how that we too might live out that identity in our everyday lives. We ask this, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please stand as we sing our um, last closing song. i
going to ask you to go ahead and be seated once again before uh, Greg comes to offer the benediction. I have one more congregational announcement that I need to, uh, to read to you. I have a letter from uh, Josh Huff, who is our worship uh, director, our director of worship and technology. He writes to the pastors and session in the body of Hickson Presbyterian Church. I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for the past month of rest. God has been so faithful over the last several weeks, and our family has felt the hand of God working mightily. I miss you very much, but I am thankful for the time to focus on my marriage. As we look at 2018, we have much to pray about. One of the main things that God has been causing us to think through is our future at HPC. It has been a great joy to serve with you over these past four years. I've learned so much about the Lord, you all in my own heart, as we have spent time together. It is because of this that the decision that I have come to is so difficult. Full-time ministry puts unique pressures on a family. One of those pressures is living up to the expectation of what being a ministry family must look like. There are so many things to get involved in, and often the line between serving the Lord and being with the Lord gets blurred. This has everything to do with the heart, not things forced on us from the church. Over the past 13 years or so of full-time ministry, our hearts have sometimes gotten too caught up with doing and not enough with our relationship with Jesus. For Mariah in particular, this has been a hard balance to find. And this has put a strain on her relationship with the Lord, and it has forced us to really examine what ministry involvement looks like for our family moving forward. Therefore, it is with great sadness that I must tender my resignation from my current position as Director of Worship and Technology. This is a decision that has been reached through much prayer within my family. This session has shepherded us through the process, and we all agree that this is what is best. I realize this will put a greater burden on many people within the church to handle the work that I was doing, and for that I am sorry. However, I am also confident that the Lord will provide for these needs. After all, this is Christ's church, and he is the one who has promised to strengthen and continue the work through the hands of his people. We aren't sure what the future will hold, but HPC is still our church, and we hope to see many of you when we have the privilege to attend. We would appreciate your continued prayers, your encouragement and support as I look for a new job in the area and as we continue to seek God's will for our family. Even a quick email or a card or a text message helps us to feel like we're not alone and is extremely encouraging, even if we can't respond right away. Psalm 46 has been a great hymn that I've clung to over the past several months. It encourages us that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And therefore, I will not fear, and I will trust in Yahweh, my fortress. Thank you again for these past four years. I have no doubt that God will use this season in each of our lives to grow us towards personal holiness and bring much glory to his name as he works all things together according to the kind purpose of his will. Grace and peace to all of you. Josh Huff and the Huff family. Change is always hard, and it's sometimes painful. Uh, but we in the session uh, agree that this is the best thing right now for the Huffs uh, and for us. 
And uh, God does this. God moves folks around. He is the God of change. If you read the scripture, um, he is forcing his people into and through change time and again and calling us to new places of service and to new avenues of life. So uh, we believe that God is at work. We believe that he has good things in store for Josh and Mariah and their family as they seek him in a new uh, a new venue and a new way. And I think he has good things in store for us as we enter the new year. We just encourage you to pray. The session has already begun the process of putting together a search committee and to see what God has for us. And I would encourage you to pray as we search that God will bring the right person uh, to fill in the gaps and to serve our family and to take us forward. Um, the Lord has done it. And it's marvelous in our eyes. We trust him. We trust him. In the name of Jesus. Now, if you will, please stand and hear the Lord's benediction, which comes to us from his word, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Go in peace. Amen. <laughs>